I am, we're going to try a little bit of an experiment, which I don't know why I even said, me being a speaker is always a little bit of an experiment. So we'll see how this goes. These are actually my notes. The hope is that they kind of make sense to you by the time we're done. Um, but I just want you to know that is not a guarantee. Uh, the big thing actually is more so that um, I want this to be helpful to you. Uh, you spent the time to be here. So uh, what we did in the last group was if I'm saying something, you're like, wait, but what about, or this doesn't, can you clarify this? Um, uh, you can also, I mean, if you want to say something insulting, that's fine. I mean, it'll be on camera. Uh, but, uh, but I, I mean, we'll never see each other again, right? Go for it. Swing away. That's fine. But the idea is I want you to feel challenged. I do want you to feel encouraged. And I want you to feel more equipped uh, and educated on maybe what we do uh, uh, to reach the next generation. What I did say last week, I will say it probably three different ways this week. I will say it over and over again, is everything that I have done, every study that I have dove into, every successful generational revival comes from that generation. It is the previous generation's ability to find the people that are already sort of buying in and then equipping and empowering them. Something I did not tell the next group, so now you know things they don't, uh, is one of the stories I remember hearing is uh, about a church that did a revival, uh, and it was like four nights long, and I got to admit, I didn't do the research. This could be false, but it's a good story, so let's just tell it anyway. But there's one church that, that did a revival that... Um, it was like four nights, and out of all four nights, only two young men came forward out of the whole thing. Massive failure, right? Okay. No, because um, one of those two was this kid named Billy Graham. Now again, I don't know if that's true, but that sounds good, so we're just going to go with that, right? Uh, if you've read a book that proves that wrong, keep that to yourself. Uh, thank you, because the story's too good. But, uh, but the thing is... I think that's the important part, is to understand that our goal is to find the people that can reach them. Uh, I was having a great conversation uh, after the first session. For some reason, we're really diving in here, here we go. Um, for some reason, America, for over a hundred years, has sent missionaries overseas and they've done an amazing job. Christianity is growing in what's called the Global South. Global South is a terrible term that I really don't like that sociologists use. That basically means anything below Europe and the Rio Grande. Like, that's Global South. Basically non-Western civilization, right? That's where Christianity is growing right now. Where we've been sending missionaries <laughs> for years. The fascinating thing is, the average church in America operates, for some reason, on different rules. The rules of, I'm starting in a Christian civilization trying to pastor people in that Christian culture. Which, if you don't know, we're, 
that's just not the truth anymore. Is that we're trying to reach a non-Christian culture. Which means, congratulations, you've all been upgraded. You're missionaries. If you're here today, you're a missionary. And one of the most important ways you can even understand that, yes, to your own generation. And you're looking for the missionary for the next generation. Because missionaries know that they don't reach that culture. They help that culture reach that culture. Okay. Massively important difference. Um, so, I, I really hope the first group tunes in and listens to that part, because that's important. This is such a mishmash. Someone in the front row last uh, session thought that we were going to talk about engineering, because uh, of all the stuff that's up here. This is a little bit of you know, like the jigsaw, like we talked about last week. There's, these are jigsaw puzzles for this week that hopefully come together. And in the end, my hope is that we have a better understanding of, one, generations, two, the way that people and humans tend to develop, and then also possibly some of the church's responses. The big thing, though, that we will come back to over and over again is your posture toward the next generation will always be the deciding factor of how they respond to you. And over and over again, I am challenged by the younger generation almost always gravitates to the oldest person in the room. Not the youngest, the oldest person in the room that they feel like takes them seriously. You know why I love helping out with some toddlers? Because they think I'm a genius. It's awesome. All right? And sometimes that is the oldest person in the room that takes me seriously. About, you know, six. Because I can do a pretty decent magic trick. I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty good at bragging. Um, so let's dive into what's up here. The red line on the bottom is what I'm going to start with, even though that makes no sense. It's just the last thing I thought of. And it's something that really relates to what we talked about last week that I wanted to add on to a little bit. So this is the extra credit from last week. All right. And this looks like it's a mathematical equation. It's not. The B stands for the boomer generation. X stands for generation X. The M with Y means millennials or generation Y. Uh, generation Z, Generation Alpha, possibly Generation Beta. One of the things that has been shown with generational theory uh, is the concept that every other generation, A, has a lot in common, oddly enough, and neither of them want to admit it. Uh, so they tend to live in a bit of tension. Oddly enough, boomers have a much better opinion of Gen Xers than millennials. Millennials have a better opinion of Generation X and Generation Z than they do of Alpha, even though Alpha is even just being born right now. And by the way, the waves are also population. Why are millennials so big? Because the boomers are their parents. When a larger generation becomes parents, 
they actually go up. Interesting thing I did not talk about at all. Again, you're getting so much extra. Uh, you're, this is like, this is that, that like extra DVD that came with it. Any young people here that need to learn what a DVD is? No, we're fine. Um, but uh, something that we do not talk about at all is actually right now in America, the birth rate for a two-person household, if I understand this right, is less than two which is like 1.9 or something like that. Do you know what that actually means? Math, do I have any mathematicians here? What that actually means? We're actually going down, um, which is interesting. All right. So uh, that, that is actually a realization that alpha and beta are going to be dealing with in the not too distant future is the realization that, hey, we're actually shrinking slightly as a country, which is surprising, right? We're not supposed to do that, I thought. So, um, in fact, when you see census data uh, of 2020, a lot of the growth is actually in immigration, not in birth, because the birth rate is so low. Um, all right, let's start with Mannheim, or I believe you say Mannheim, uh, because he was German. Um, and that is the best German accent that I can do. If you didn't like it, that's the reason I'm here and not on a stage. So, Karl Mannheim in 1928 came out with what is referred to as the theory of generations. Or his paper was called, uh, I do not know how to speak German, but it was like, Problem das Generations. Uh, in other words, he was a real optimist. You know those Germans. Uh, the problem of generations. It was not translated uh, to English until uh, the 1950s. Anyone know why? Yeah, yeah. There was this little <laughs> argument we had with Germany between 1930 and 1945 that kind of delayed some of that stuff. Um, so yeah, it was in, we we heard about this in 1952. It is the reason that you or I talk about generations. He developed the first on-paper generational theory. Now this is massively important because you fail the test if you get this wrong. Karl Mannheim, the theory of generations. Strauss and Howe came up with generational theory. Don't confuse them. Totally different. That'll be on the quiz. All right. But Strauss and Howe, or yeah, they, I think that's the, they didn't go alphabetical for some reason. But Strauss and Howe's work of generational theory built upon Mannheim's work. I, I just want to say his name with the German accent. But Ma, 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 Karl's work. We'll just call him Karl. We're buddies. Strauss and Howe came up with generational theory. This sounds. Um, how can I say? This sounds a bit much to me. And before we dive into what it is, I just want to make sure we all sort of understand something massively important about this kind of stuff. They are lenses. They are helpful ways to look at the world that we are in, the world we're going to, the world that we've been in. It's helpful lenses. All right. Have you ever seen um, a filter that took away a color? It's kind of fun. Or even just 3D glasses, right? All of a sudden you put on glasses that shouldn't help you, right? Red, blue. 
And then suddenly the screen comes alive. I'm like, this, this is really weird to me. Um, that's what these are, are helpful lenses to help some things pop out of the screen. Sometimes the lenses are less helpful. In social science, uh, it's, very, it's somewhat common to refer to all of these sort of things as wrong. They are all wrong, but they are helpful. So as soon as you want to say, but what about? Excellent question. That's because they're wrong. <laughs> they're all wrong to a point. But if they get so wrong that they're no longer helpful, they cease to be a theory. They cease to be discussed. They cease to be a lens whatsoever. But if the lens helps us zoom in a little bit, understand things a little bit better, that is the goal, is to kind of understand. They are broad strokes. Uh, there's a lot of blending that happens on an interpersonal thing. We should never look at a, a kid and define them by what you learned by generating, well, you know, you're going to grow up and here's what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, no, that's not the way to go about it. But to understand what might be a reality. Um, something I, I did talk about that before we jump into Strauss how that I think is helpful it was a little bit of a rabbit trail. I'm going to try to keep it more like a, like a hamster trail. But we'll, we'll see how I do with this. Is the concept of worldview is always a massive important thing to keep in mind when referring to generations. Things that define a generation are things like catastrophes that happened. We had someone in the, in the room um, uh, the, the previous session that was 20 years old. And so I made everybody throw up by making him say what year he was born. And he was born in 2002. And we all just, ugh, like kind of just in our, all right, it was great. Because it's not that he just doesn't remember 9-11. He wasn't born. And I mean, I'm like young adult, right? We're not even talking like young adult, all right? Voting age. Not drinking age, but that's fine. Um, you understand, like, his world always had vocabulary like Al-Qaeda. Like, always. And again, not that he doesn't remember, literally was born into a world where he probably learned to spell that in elementary school. Okay? The concept of fighting a war that has an obvious beginning and end is a completely foreign concept. And he is not young. <laughs> he is not an alpha generation. He's not the next generation. He's here. Right? That's 20. And that feels like a foreign generation to discuss. Worldview and the world that you grew up in. I always love to, in my classes, I show... I I can never remember the name of this website. It's like the realsize.com or something like that. It's, you would just Google map of real sizes of countries or something like that. And it pulls up this flat map of the world. And if you don't know this about a map with longitude, latitude, I think I got that right. This is not my area of study, so I get to... You know, some grace here. But the longitude lines come together at the poles. Which means if you stretch out the map to be flat, what you've done is taken what's a one mile difference and you've stretched it 
all the way to be the same amount of miles difference as it is at the equator, which is maybe 100 miles or something bigger along those lines. And so it's completely wrong. It's completely uh, incorrect as far as how big something is. And so it shows you this map. It's a map that you consider to be like, yeah, I've seen this before. And then you type in something like Greenland, and then it highlights Greenland, and then you're able to drag it anywhere you like. And you drag it close to the equator, and you know what it does? <whistles> Gets massively smaller. The size didn't change, it's just what, it, what the actual sizes shows up. My favorite one is Japan. I mean, we're talking five years ago, if you had asked me, how big is Japan compared to like America? I would have been like, I don't know, Florida? Okay, I moved it over. Maine to the Florida Keys is how big the country of Japan is. I really need to like find the exchange student that stayed with my aunt and apologize because I'm like, oh, you're from Japan. How many times have you been to Tokyo? You know, that's like saying, oh, you're from Philadelphia. How many times have you been to Miami? Uh, you know, it's just, nope, I've never been there. Actually, thanks for asking because there's, it's nowhere near me. But because my worldview for some reason was that they were roughly the same size, that skewed my understanding of what the world is. In fact, one of my real favorite things to do, and I can ask you all right here, to picture a map of the world right now. And if you were born in America and raised here, America, in your mind, is either in the middle or to the left. All right? If I asked you to draw a map of the world where America was to the right, or even worse, divided in half, you will lose your mind. You know, it would take you so much longer. It would be easier to ask you to draw a map of the world that you're familiar with with your non-dominant hand than it is to draw a map of the world with your dominant hand with things slightly skewed in a different direction. Whereas if you're born in somewhere in Asia, guess what's in the middle? Asia's in the middle. America might be chopped in half. Not a big deal. Right? The reason that that's important is the way that you view the world. None of you were ever taught America's in the middle. None of you were ever taught, okay kids, remember, America's to the left. But you know what was in front of you for years and years and years? Maps, where America was in the middle or to the left. That's the model that was in front of you. That was the world view that you developed and pretty much were never officially even taught. So therefore, we always have to understand that sometimes generations are given a map. They're never even taught that that's the map for sometimes, but the map's there and they've absorbed it. That the reality is that they're existing in a space and even though we're using the same language, well, just go three steps left and one step north. Why am I in Kentucky but the next generation somehow ended up in Dubai. Because even though we're using the same directions and we're both looking at the same world, our worldviews slightly different. That's a lot of metaphor and that was a rabbit trail. That was not a mouse trail, sorry, I, I failed. But as we understand the next generation, understanding that just the way that we view things, the starting point of things, can be a different conversation than we think it is. And if we're considered to be older and wiser, 
we're the ones that are supposed to offer grace first because we're older and wiser. And if we don't understand what they're saying, we're the ones that are supposed to be able to say, you know what, that, that's interesting you said that. Can you explain that a little more? I feel like we're getting to the same place, but I don't, oh, that's it. So how do you define that word? There are literally words that don't mean the same thing that they meant when, when you were taught the meaning of the word, or the meaning's been broadened, or they can be describing completely two different things. And I want to get angry because you just called me a word that I thought doesn't make sense, but actually they're not saying this, they're saying that, but I think you're saying this. That happens all the time. We don't tend to remember because I will say it did happen when you were younger, not as much. But maybe, it, but, but I would imagine it still did happen. Now we're going to jump into what's going to feel like a prep for a final. Um, and before I did that, I, I wanted to kind of set that stage just a little bit. Um, so let's hop in. All right. So I already talked about Mannheim. Strauss Howe came up with generational theory. Generational theory basically says this. Whenever someone publishes a, a con concept of theory, they have to come up with like new vocabulary words. I'm like, couldn't we just, couldn't we just use words we already have? And I always forget with Strauss, like, it, like for the longest time I realized I was calling it the wrong thing. I was using like, a, I don't know, a magical spell from Harry Potter or something, but it was like, Aluseum, or something like that is what they refer to it as, but an 80-year cycle, and it's an 80-year cycle that repeats itself on a thank you. you, you know what I'm going, this way. Um, there's a difference between circular and circular. Um, I will always say, when it comes to any sort of what feels like a circular cycle, I don't believe there's any such thing as a totally circular cycle. And the way that I explain this is a lot like astronomy. I was taught in, you know, second grade. The Earth, you know, goes around the sun. And that's what a year is, okay? But as you get older, you find out that we're in this thing called the Milky Way galaxy. And we're flying around the edge of that at a billion miles an hour or whatever it is. And oh, by the way, the galaxy is in a universe, okay? And, and that is something that is just going around and around as well. So what that means is the Earth is not doing this. The Earth is doing this. Okay, that's what's happening. Well, I didn't know that when I was in fifth grade or whatever it was when I was 10 years old, but I didn't need to understand that. Today, I want you to understand when we talk about these cycles, they're also happening over time. So yes, they kind of have this circular pattern that if you look at it from this point of view, it might look like it's doing this, but I kind of feel more like it does move and shift slightly. So therefore, you might want to say, well, what about, you're right, because right, they're all wrong, but they're all helpful, right enough to be helpful. So these 80-year cycles have four points to them. They actually, uh, astronomy is a good reference because it's considered to be uh, seasons. They call them seasons or turns. Every 20 years, roughly, there's a turn, is what Strauss and Howe tells us. And they call it the spring, summer, winter, fall. They actually refer to them 
in seasonal terms. And the idea of spring being a um, n new birth, new ideas, a time of, of energy, a time of uh, positivity. And then summer is where that, whatever this, whether the positivity was, kind of settles into a place where things get a little more codified. Uh, new ideas, new movements get a little more uh, regular, uh, expected even. And then 20 years uh, after that is more of a season of the fall. Uh, the fall where things, all of a sudden the cracks in what we came up with, because every system is flawed. You know, what was it? Uh, Winston Churchill, democracy. It's the worst system of government we've ever come up with, save for every other system of government that we've ever come up with, right? Um, every system's flawed. So therefore, in, in the fall, the, the societal system or, uh, comes into something of a, the, the cracks start to show a little bit, things that got codified that maybe shouldn't have, uh, things that could be better, the generation starts to push, and then we go into winter, which is a time where things really start to maybe die out, the things that were a problem become a bigger problem, and they ends in some sort of, I think they refer to it as a catastrophic turn, or a catastrophic event. When they published this in 91, they went backwards and they said, so for example, World War II. I gotta tell you, I mean, the bar for some of these is World War I wasn't, wasn't catastrophic enough, but World War II was. But then you go 80 years before that, uh, Civil War, roughly, in our country. And I should say, almost all generational theory, uh, uh, all of this stuff up here is based on Western culture. Uh, so as much as Global South is where Christianity is growing, oddly enough, there's not a ton of sociological, especially generational theory for Global South. Um, but right now, for us in this place, how we reach the next generation, this is massively helpful. It's one of the flaws. But Strauss goes, they actually went back, they said Civil War, before that you have the Revolutionary War. Many times it was a war. Um, and it's interesting because some people are like, oh, well, sure, they published this paper because we're probably now in winter, right? And then they just went backwards, and that's the way they see the world because if every tool in your tool belt is a hammer, that means every problem looks like a nail. So, that, you know, that, that's, that's definitely true. Here's the weird thing. They didn't write this in the last 20 years. Uh, they actually wrote it in 91 which hurts me to remember that that's more than 20 years ago. They actually wrote it. They said, we're roughly in the middle. Like they, they literally guessed it. They said, we're roughly in the middle of a fall period. In about 20 to 30 years, we'll be experiencing what feels more of a catastrophic time. And they started to describe this time. And I'm not kidding. If you read their work, you're like, you are a psychic. Like, it just feels like, like get behind me, Satan. It's a little too on the nose of the things they describe. But the really weird thing is they didn't just go back to the Revolutionary War. I think I mentioned this last week. They went back to the mid-1500s every 80 years. Now, they have uh, made one concession, or I should say that I believe Strauss passed away, but Howe is still alive. And Howe made a concession that because lifespans are uh, getting slightly longer, that generational uh, differences are going to uh, dilate as well. And so it doesn't have to be 20 years per se anymore, but we could get to where there's 
the winter is maybe not exactly right now, the catastrophic event. We, this is where it gets complicated. We say, well, well did we get there? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. But because to me, this is much more helpful to understand that this is kind of where we are, is in a place where things start to reset. And it doesn't, I just want you to hear this. I'm not referring to Christian revival. What I'm referring to is a cultural attitude, a way that things are understood and perceived. And oddly enough, these seasons are roughly 20 years. So roughly speaking, a generation. So you're born normally in one season, and the next generation is born in the next season. So therefore, every generation after you is born in a different season of this 80-year cycle. Once again, helps you understand that when we're talking about ideals, we might literally be talking about completely separate concepts. Even though we're using the same vocabulary, even though we're, it sounds like our bullseye's the same, but then you were celebrating something that to me looked like a miss, right? The, the, this is a very normal thing that happens between generations. So that's Strauss and Howe. And it goes way more complicated, but I love using it as a tool. It is not a map for me. It is a lens to look at uh, things around me. Uh, like I said, I'm very, very careful with how hard I lean on Strauss Howe. Then you have Jean Piaget, who I can never remember exactly what time period he was alive, because it wasn't on the test, and so I didn't have to remember that. But Jean Piaget is considered the, the, the author, the father of modern development theory, developmental theory. Uh, studied a lot in a little bit in sociology, more psychology, um, child development, but also up word into adult development as well, the way our brains reason at certain periods of our lives, um, the, the type of questions that we're asking. There's a ton of flaws with his work. Uh, like for one, his main test subjects were his kids. I'm sure they appreciated that. Uh, but Jean Piaget was the first one to really kind of codify, solidify a concept of a developmental theory and he's still studied today. Eric Erickson, who has a much easier name to remember than Jean Piaget, Eric Erickson took to Piaget's work and developed a more de uh, detailed developmental theory. Uh, he actually took the different levels and sort of subdivided them ever so slightly. Um, his included cognitive processing a little bit more than Piaget's did. But the idea is that these are all, Eric Erickson, actually now I'm going to confuse these now that I'm on the fly. But Eric Erickson, if I remember correctly, actually refers to attention. He, he identified attention in each stage. That That is the tension that that stage wrestles with the most. I find Erickson's work much uh, really helpful when I am talking with someone. I try to remember which stage they're in, or more specifically, I actually have the stages on a board in my office. And so there's like a kid sitting in my office. And I'm going, yeah, and I just, I guess, quickly look. I'm like, oh, God, okay. You know, it really helps me have that conversation because I realize the tension they're feeling is different than the tension that I'm feeling.
And so tensions lead to what we value, which means ultimately speaking, what we value is the bullseye that we're shooting at. So if you have a different tension in your life that you're wrestling with, that means our bullseyes are different. Even if we agree that the ultimate bullseye is Jesus in the gospel, if the tension in your life is different than the tension in mine, what we're shooting at is different, and I don't realize what your, what your goal is, what you're trying to get toward. It leads to a lot of cross-communication that gets wasted. So Piaget and Erickson, beautiful job there. And then this is uh, Kohler and Welderson is what I wrote down. And as soon as I wrote it down, I knew it was wrong. I, I don't remember exactly what it was, so I just made a footnote of, I'm pretty sure I got those names wrong. Kohler uh, is, I think Kohler's right, but the other one's like Wender, Wendelness, anyway. Um, these are some of the first people that took Piaget and Erickson's work and related it specifically to spiritual development. That's helpful, right? Uh, the, the concept of, okay, well, if this is your tension, if this is your developmental level, then spiritually, what is your, what is your tension? What's the question you're asking? Because in church, we really do believe that Jesus is the answer. We all kind of agreed on that. What's really funny is, depending on where you are, the question changes. And if you don't identify with my question, I'm not sure I believe your answer. Jesus is the answer. Welcome to our church. Okay, but do you know my question? Can you help me nail down my question? Well, no, but I'm pretty sure Jesus is the answer. And here's the crazy thing. You're right. Except I don't believe you because you haven't helped you haven't showed me that you understand the questions I'm actually asking. The people that have done this more recently that I talk about way too much um, is Ivy and, and Joyner, uh, Reggie Joyner and Kristen Ivy. They published something called the Phase Project. If you are a parent or a grandparent, look them up. They actually make cards for every grade level. Oh, 11th grade, 12th grade. They actually have a, a timeline where they show uh, birth through graduation. The primary question that the average the, uh, 11th grader is asking is this. The primary emotion that they are uh, feeling, that they are going toward, is this. Uh, the, the primary role that they tend to play, they think like A and they have like philosopher uh, versus this. It changes as they go. Now, you know your kids or your grandkids, you're like, well, they were always a little bit of like an engineer mind. You're exactly right. But when they got to this level, they started thinking in a slightly different way as an engineer or something like that. The, the Ivy Joiner work is just brilliant, brilliant work because they made it readable, which is something in academia that we apparently just forgot. Uh, it matters. Uh, in science, I don't know if there's scientists here, like we almost love our jargon way too much. Like if I wrote a paper and you get it, I somehow failed. Like I want you to be so confused by the end. Uh, uh, my cousin wrote her dissertation, has her PhD in microbiology and chemistry. We literally couldn't read the title. Dissertations that thick were like, well, I'm never going to read that. Oh, that's great. All right. It was apparently brilliant work, right? But I just don't know. Ivy and Joyner are interested in you understanding 
all of this. And without having to like footnote everything and all that, they want you to understand, hey, um, you know what the most important thing that you can uh, do for kids that are in a nursery is let them know they're safe. The number one question is, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Do the kids know that that's what they're asking? Absolutely not. All right? You are in a stage of life, whichever stage you're in. You are asking a question. Do you know what question you're asking? I would argue 75% of the time you probably don't, actually. But as soon as it's brought to you, you're like, oh, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, these sort of things are beautifully done and go, oh yeah, you know what, that is the question I asked. One of the milestones they talk about in their work is like when you're 16 years old, you get your driver's license. Might take a couple tries, as it did with me. But it was huge. My father passed away a few years ago, but he was... Um, the term is actually a tragic optimist, uh, is the official term. If you don't know what that means, he's basically, if you met him, you'd be like, a little pessimistic. And the reason that you're a tragic optimist is that optimist means you believe the world is just a good place and good things should happen. So then when good things don't happen, you get really depressed. So therefore, when you're a tragic optimist, you've been you know, kicked in the teeth enough that you believe that the, something's wrong. And so my dad was always like, oh, yeah, you know, things are hard. Oh, my goodness. So he always talked like a pessimist. But I'm not kidding. The first thing he said to me when I passed the test, well, Jonathan, you're now legally able to operate a killing machine. <laughs> I was like, thanks, Dad. Just put that on the cake. You know, thanks. Appreciate that, right? <laughs> And the th I mean, he wasn't wrong, right? He, he, technically speaking, was speaking truth. It was what he felt like was helpful to understand because he looked at me and thought, I, don't, I think death is more likely when you're behind a wheel than transportation. So, um, but the reality here is that if my number one desire is independence, and one of my number one milestones of that independence is this card that I get, that I earned, that I worked really hard for. I learned to parallel park, and our smallest vehicle was a van. Not minivan, van. And I parallel parked that thing. I am so proud. There are 16-year-olds in this church. It's still 16 in Delaware, right? I have to remember I'm not in the same state. Um, that have just hit one of their biggest milestones in their high school career up to this date. Have you congratulated any of them? Do you know any of them well enough to know that they got their, their milestone? It's the number one question you ask if when someone says they're 15, if they're 16, 17. Because it's the number one thing on a 15-year-old's mind. 17, you start talking about college. Oh, hey, well, you, what are you doing after high school? Oh, that's awesome. I don't care what they say. Oh, that's awesome, is the answer. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good idea. That's awesome. You got your license. Dude, congratulations. That's huge. That's huge. Most of us have been driving for so long, we forgot how important it was, how frightening it was to get behind the wheel. 
And we need to be able to say, hey, I see you. I hear you. And also maybe hold in that, and I am so scared right now to be on the road, knowing that you have a license. You got to hold that in. You got to try to keep that. That's the inside voice, right? And then Ivy and Joyner identify multiple milestones. Uh, ones that I, it's so obvious once you say it, but I just didn't identify it. Oh, wow, that's so great. Like at, at our, and, and sometimes you have to identify them per school, per area. Um, in our school, fourth grade and fifth grade girls get to play field hockey. It's a really big deal. I did not realize that like our area is field hockey central in the world. Okay, that's not true. In the country. Like I did not realize that whatsoever. It's like parts of California, a few parts of Texas, and then like Maryland to maybe like Boston. That's it. I, I, when, I, when I went down to uh, uh, New Mexico, even in South Carolina, I was like, oh, so do you guys play field hockey? And they're like, what are you talking They had no idea what I, what I was talking about. It's also, anyone here like from Maine or lived in Maine in a while? Yeah, there was like, oh, yeah, we had our cross-country ski team in high school. I was like, you're what? You had a cross-country skiing team? They're like, yeah, John, it snows in like October. And that snow doesn't go anywhere until like May 30th. Memorial Day is like the, the, we actually thaw out, you know. We actually get to practice. So these concepts that certain things become more important. Things that, to be honest, to some people that like, you know, I'm in my mid-40s. I don't even think about the, the honor it is that I'm able to drive here. You know. Do you know the last time I was tested on law, of uh, the vehicle law? I was 16. My dad taught me how to drive. Two laws had changed since he learned how to drive. He made fun of me because he thought I was wrong. And by made fun of me, I think he passed away five years ago. I'm pretty sure he joked about it six years ago. He's like, hey, John, remember that temporary speed limit thing or suggested speed limit? I was like, it's a real thing, Dad! But it was more fun to just let him go with it. But oddly enough, when a 16-year-old gets a license, they technically know more about driving, technically, than we do. They know the newest laws. I don't know the newest laws because we don't have to retest. I had a driver's license in three states that I never took a test for. That was ridiculous. I was like, I don't even know what that sign means, but I'm just going to keep going. The concept, concept of this coming together is the phase projects help us to know what phase they're in so that we can then respond. And this is something that I think is important to remember again. I think it's once someone feels like they are part of the family, we can kind of say, hey, you're part of the family. And as part of the family, I expect some things from you. Something that someone told me, theologically speaking, that I thought was really neat about the Ten Commandments. God didn't say, follow these laws if you want to be my children. God said, you are my children. These are the house rules. There's a big difference. Because I sort of feel like we project, if you want to be part of the family, you know, then you have to follow these rules. Whereas you are part of the family, and these are our house rules. That's a, that feels, that's a big difference to me, right? 
I think way too many times we've said to the younger generation, since you're part of this church, here the, here's what we expect of you. And they'll go, whoa, <laughs> easy there. I'm not so sure I feel a part of this. I'm not, I, I don't know about that. Uh, a kid named Daniel was in my youth group in Hilton Head, and he came to a brilliant conclusion. If he no longer believed in God, he stopped feeling guilty about all the stuff he was doing that he knew was wrong. <laughs> well, that was easy. It was the easiest way to get rid of guilt. Just stop believing in God. A little awkward, because, you know, his dad was the priest. But I made sure his dad knew it wasn't my fault. But, the, but it was an interesting thing that his dad was the first one that called it out. He said, nah, this makes sense. It's developmentally very appropriate. Is He's feeling incredibly guilty about things. But what I want to do is remind him, hey, you are my child. You are God's child. I don't want you to focus on the house rules right now. I want you to focus on the fact that you are a member of this community and a child of God. And so all of a sudden, our response, because we as those that belong, are the ones that should be equipped to respond appropriately. If we get upset at the next generation or anyone that is not part of the community for not responding correctly to us, that's a little weird. And we have to be very, very, behave and then you can belong, is what we're saying, to the next generation. Be very, very careful about that. Because belong has to come first. I have to feel like I'm a member, that I'm here. And then all of a sudden there's these there's expectations of, yeah, I, I think it makes perfect sense to be able to say to a kid, hey, you're a member of this family. I expect you to start, you know, cleaning up around here. This is your house. This is our house. It's a little weird when their friend comes over and I said, if you're going to be in this house, you better pick up the vacuum and start to, like, Mr. Hobbs, what's going on? I'm like, hey, house rules. Let me talk about Charles Taylor a little bit. Charles Taylor's fascinating character. And he's going to sound like a slightly different... This is going to sound like a left turn. So before I go to Charles Taylor, understand these puzzle pieces. Ivy Joyner, very specifically, and uh, did a little bit uh, building on work, but went a slightly different direction of these two people who shall remain nameless, uh, who built on uh, the development levels, the spiritual development, and, th and they also talk about cognitive, physical, all that stuff is in there. Do you remember middle school? I mean, uh, I was never a girl, but like as a boy, it felt like I was putting on clown shoes. Because your feet grow first. So literally, like, I'm, hi. I mean, that's just the way a sixth grade boy walks. Why? Because they have man-sized shoes. They're like, hi, everybody. And they're just walking around. Do you know how awkward you feel? The world is wrong. Something is very wrong with my world. My voice is doing this. And you know what we want to do? It's hilarious. So we laugh, right? But we have to suddenly take them seriously. And that is hard, right? Kid walks over, wants to explain this cool game on their phone. And you know, I'm like, this the whole time. And you're just like, no, please tell me more about the flaming sword you just earned in that game that I really don't care about. But you just keep listening, you know? The developmental level 
with spiritual, appropriate spiritual growth. Ooh, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Based on developmental theory of how people develop as human beings in our culture, based on the concept as well and joined with the idea of what generation they're a part of, what catastrophic events they remember, what things built the way the world has been presented to them. Someone's worldview is almost never their doing. You didn't draw the map that was up front in the front of your classroom, but it created your worldview. It's not your fault that you thought America was to the left. It's not your fault that you thought Greenland was the size of Africa. Okay? However, so therefore when we disagree with worldviews, we do not blame. We do not blame them for having that view. We understand and we respectfully sometimes very much disagree with that worldview. But if we can understand where they are generationally, where we are as a world possibly, what kind of questions you're asking because of this, where you are developmentally and where you sit in that generation and where you are spiritually and able to understand and process information. Now that sounds like a lot, right? Sounds like way too much. Good Lord. Some of you are like, I give up. That was easy. Just remember, I didn't necessarily want to be my grandfather. I loved my grandfather. I had no desire to fly in a B-17, but I could tell you all about his B-17 that he was in, in the war. Because he asked me about my life a lot, so I listened about his. He took me seriously. Even the stuff that was really dumb, he took me seriously. He said, oh man, that's interesting. Oh, John, I think I told you last week, sometimes he said things that hurt, like, I don't know if college is for you. I was like, wow, thanks. Uh, but he was trying to be supportive. Then you have Charles Taylor, which adds an interesting mix to this, which is more about where we are as a Western society. I'm going to say this wrong, but again, all of these are wrong, so it's fine. Where we are as we understand... Um, this is the way Charles Taylor put it, and then Andy Root did a lot of work with Charles Taylor's work. Uh, it's, it basically, he refers to secular world or secular society. He used terms like secular zero, secular one, secular two, secular three. And he would argue that we are currently in what's called secular three. This is what he means by that. Secular meaning no metaphysical, um, spiritual aspect. Okay, or lack thereof. So secular zero is a time in our world where there basically was everything had a spiritual connection. I'm just going to put a pin in that for one second because you might be already thinking, well, don't we believe that everything at least has... Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm talking about the entire world, about the way they view the world. Um, I was reading about, um, it was actually Thomas Beckett that I was reading about, but like St. Augustine, Andy Root actually uses them as really good examples of, do you know, in, I think it was Beckett's time, it may have been Augustine, but uh, Beckett was around, I want to say, four or five hundreds, Henry II. Yeah, again, not exactly my area of expertise, but 
one of the biggest problems they had in Thomas Beckett's time is that people would take the host, the bread, and they would sneak it out of church to give to their cows or bury in their fields. Because this is the body of Christ. It's magical. It, it, it fights against the evil forces. And if your cow is sick, it's not because of a virus, it's because of an evil force. So if this fights against the evil force, I'm going to sneak it out and give it to my cow. Because, I, because, because my cow is obviously spiritually oppressed. Secular zero is that everything that's happening in the world has a spiritual connection. And not just Christian, by the way. Like everything. Why did the sun rise this morning? Because the sun God shined upon us and is happy with something that we did. Everything that happens has a spiritual, whether it be Christian or not, meaning to it. Um, it's the reason, by the way, uh, that... When the, the, the Catholic Church actually started requiring that you stick your tongue out and that the priest would put the wafer on the tongue, it's because we, we, we don't want you sneaking out with this. It's, become, it's still practiced today in some places, but that's the reasoning behind it is people were sneaking out with the host because they believed that there is this power to this that was beyond understanding and mystery and beauty. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing of Charles Taylor's work or Andy Root's work, but this idea that what it even meant, by the way, to be a church. What did it mean to be a priest or a pastor in Thomas's time, in Thomas Beckett's time? It meant that you were the person handing out something with that kind of power. Everything you did in the church had a mystical, spiritual... Baptism was not sprinkling with water or dunking with water. There was a death that was happening, truly happening. So you understand, it wasn't... This, we're not just talking about like 5,000 years ago. We're also talking about the way that Christianity was understood, is that there was such a much deeper and different understanding... Uh, the author Andy Root said it this way, if you tried to explain to uh, Augustine of Hippo or Thomas Beckett what your pastor's job is, it would be as foreign to them as the iPhone. Literally, your pastor's job, what they do from day to day, and you try to explain their job description, they would not have a clue what you're talking about. So church looked different from age to age in each secular level. Secular 1, 2, and as I said, according to Taylor, we're currently on secular 3. Now, why is that important? Because that also defines what the church is and what the church is doing. So if we understand that we are, we can't even necessarily agree on what the church's job is, that's fine. This is the world that we live in and we're trying to minister and bring the gospel, which has not changed, to a world that is changing. Two people where it is the appropriate developmental level. At times in their life where the, the very questions that they're asking can shift. In a certain generational shift. All of this works together to make it so that, I hope you hear this, the thing that made it click for you is almost never going to be the thing that makes it click for the next generation. 
the reason that you bought into the Christian faith, or I should say this, when the gospel came alive to you, I believe that was the work of the Holy Spirit. 100%. However, the thing that made you want to be a committed member of a church, that was language that was used that was culturally, generationally appropriate to help you understand even what the job of this building is. So therefore, if you try to use the thing that made you interested in being a committed member of this place to convince the next generation, I talked about astrophysics there a little bit with the Earth. I really like this one guy said, he has, it was like a, on TikTok, they were like, what's a conspiracy theory that you believe in? And this guy goes, I think that they figured out time travel, but they haven't figured out space travel. Meaning, remember I said, on Earth, you're not just moving like this, you're moving like this through space. I think we can go back in time, but the problem is, we're not there. If I go back in time, like a hundred years, I'm just going to be in the middle of space. Because that's where we are in space right now. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Just trust me, it's really cool and deep. But this idea of such a fascinating thing. We have never in a million years been in this exact space and time. We have never been here before. So therefore, the gospel, which has always been true, has to be communicated to this space and time which means it will not be the thing that made it click for you, except to say that the Holy Spirit must be involved. Um, I promised to talk about things that we got wrong, and I didn't do any of that, so I'll tell you a couple things really quick. Um, things that we got wrong. Number one, um, every single generation tends to think that the next generation, but especially the two, boomers to millennials, millennials to alpha, is entitled. Um, your grandparents thought you were entitled. You were an entitled little brat. Okay. I don't know, but you were entitled. And they, they felt that way, and they told your parents, probably. Sometimes more passive-aggressive. Every generation thinks the next generation is entitled. Entitled little brats. Who likes to make fun of participation trophies? Everybody. Because you believe all the trophies you got were earned. That is a convenient way to believe. All right? I'll tell you something. Um, my brother is older than me. Neither of us are millennials. We got participation trophies all the time. My brother's like a good bit older than me. He's heavily into the Xers. We never talk about Generation X having participation trophies. That's a millennial thing. You know why we talk about the millennials getting participation trophies? Because the boomers didn't really notice the Xers. They noticed the millennials. If you're a millennial, you're going to be talking some stuff about the alphas. Every generation thinks the next generation has it much easier than they do, that they're entitled to things. Uh, also, I've, one of my favorite things I've heard is oh, technology. I'm just so tired of technology. I was like, wow, you walked here? today 
They're like, well, I mean, no. I mean, I'm tired of like screens. And I was like, yeah, you don't use screens? They're like, okay, so I don't like screens. I want kids to pay attention. You paid attention when you were a teenager? I am shocked. There's a great picture of a subway. I mean, from the like just slightly post-war era, you know, like like 50s, 60s, maybe at the most. It's literally a whole bunch of people reading the newspaper. Like 20 people in the subway car. Everyone's reading the newspaper. You know, back when we talked to each other. No, you didn't. Okay. As soon as porches moved from the front to the back. And that did not happen with the millennials. It actually happened with the boomers. It happened when we moved to the suburbs. Uh, okay? we, every generation made changes that had effects. And my, my favorite thing, actually, a friend of mine said this. He goes, oh, you want to make fun of participation trophies? I was five. Who gave me the participation trophy? The older people. So let's be careful. All right? Now, do I really care about, I don't care one bit about participation trophies. I care about the posture that we have. There are generational differences, one of the, but, but they're allowed to change. For example, the Zs and Alphas. Alphas are not in the workforce yet, but the Zs are. Uh, if you're interviewing an Alpha and you say that we're a big family at this company, they will run, not toward you, away. To hear that something is a family is a negative term to generation, late generation Z and Alpha. Well, that doesn't make any sense. They shouldn't think that way. That's not your job. Your job is not to reshape their definitions of words and their understandings and their life experiences. They've actually been trained that it is a negative thing for a company to define itself as a family. You know why? I get zero dollars for being a member of my family. I work overtime for no money and expect nothing back. But I do get a lot of guilt trips if I don't go help my mom set up her new computer. I don't want to work for that. Family is not... Ne so if, if family can be a word that you, we don't use in a workspace, can you understand how big of a difference sometimes we need to be open to? Concepts that we need to be able to say because we live in a very specific type of world with a specific worldview where people that are developmentally, and I keep saying the word appropriate, it is possible to love it when someone is actually in the wrong appropriate developmental space. The kid like, is like preaching the gospel and he's like six. You're like, you know you're just vomiting up what you heard, right? Like that is not the spirit moving through the kid per se, most likely. Um, but these developmental stages, but if you simply just want to boil it down, be the oldest person in the room that takes the next generation seriously. And I think you're going to go farther than most churches can even dream. Take them seriously because the next generation needs to know Jesus. And you are called to this time, to this space, to be the people that hand off that faith. Amen. Thanks, guys. I'm up here. You can come say hi to me, talk to me, yell at me. I'm going to turn off my mic so it's not on uh, camera. So there we go. God bless. Thank you.